Hey guys, welcome back to Anchor and Devoted. I'm Pastor Chair. And I'm Pastor Joseph. Welcome back. Welcome back. And if you were not uncomfortable last time, as we were uncomfortable, <laughs> we are going to get back into the uncomfortable position. We're, we're here to grow. We're getting we are. With us. So we're going we're gonna to pick back up, sort of uh, retracing our steps from the last conversation that Dave and I had, specifically about the uh, Buffalo shooting. Mm-hmm. Um, but more specifically, the question you asked, Dave, that really was the the diving board that I kind of played on the end of, but never actually jumped off of was what do you say when your son asks, dad, you might safe going to the grocery store, but yep, I'm going to hand off to you. You have questions for me and uh, I'm going to endeavor to actually answer those questions this time. Not well, just, well, you did a good job of listening last time and, um, we both agreed after the episode was recorded, did a good job pointing back to um, the real thing of the gospel and God's work and his grace and mercy. Uh, but, and I, I say, but when it really should be, and because um, it, it doesn't negate the stuff before it, it's, and um, there's still the hands and feet part that has to be wrestled out. Yeah. And that was the part we didn't get to. Um, you know, it's still a question for me because I've, I've got to have the tough questions. And um, I know since we recorded that, I recommended a book to you and you blew through it. You smiled. What do you want to say? Go for it. It was a good book. It's a very good book. What made it good? I, I thank you for sending it to me. Um, so over the past several years, I've been doing a lot of broader reading with um, ideas that, you know, I may already have some compatibility with in my worldview. I may not, but trying to wrap my hands around and my head around the perspective of people who are pushing for, for really large-scale fundamental changes, not just in how we do things, but in the way that we view and think about society and people as individuals. So I've read several books on the um, mass incarceration. Mm-hmm. Yep, I recommend the book. Prison Industrial <laughs> Complex, yeah. And this book was the book you recommended, A Knock at Midnight, I believe, was the title mm-hmm. by, um, oh, <laughs> terrible with author's names. <laughs> Give it's me a okay. second and I'll, I'll come back with it. Um, I had read Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow mm-hmm. a few years ago, and I had read a few other books that dealt specifically with mass incarceration. This book was good for two reasons. Number one, uh, and this book was a a knock at midnight, like I said, and uh, man, I'm really wishing I hadn't blanked on the name. I might, I might overdub this later and put the name in. (laughs) Anyhow, uh, Brittany K, Brittany K what? Brittany K. uh, So you really want help? I can help. Yeah. What's her name? (laughs) So. Uh, let's first give a little bit of backdrop. She's a lawyer, right? Yes. And um, in the book, she starts off doing what? 
she starts off describing her exposure to her watching mm-hmm. the a YouTube video of a woman who was um, on her first arrest for any kind of drug offense mm-hmm. was sentenced to life in prison. And that's the backdrop mm-hmm. of the book. The book is to, to use a, a slogan that's out there uh, outside of this, but was in the, the story and in her experience was life after life. How do we help people? How do we rescue people who have not been served justly by the justice system because of the laws that were put in place mm-hmm. in the war on drugs mm-hmm. that was put in place back in the 80s yep that have changed good intentions <laughs> or not good intentions aside had the impact of doing tremendous injustice to mm-hmm. hundreds of thousands of people mm-hmm. and mostly minorities but Brittany barnett and that's her name thank you she um, does a great job telling the story of um, how she recognized that uh, this same thing could happen to her and how uh, many people were looking and creating a system to capture as many people as possible that were involved with uh, drugs. Um, but the way in which the system worked was unfair. And so she talked about how you could sell a literal tractor trailer load of stuff and get a lighter sentence than someone who was selling, um, you know, a pocket full of it because of how the laws are written and how one court didn't talk to another court or one creator of laws didn't talk to an, like there was never this reconciliation to make things make sense. But then also the, the laws themselves, as you were stating, Jer, um, have changed since then, but people are in prison for what they did in the past. And the same law response hasn't changed to what is today. Um, so if you got two years for something today and you got 20 years for it 10 years ago, you're still serving time as though this is a 20 year offense um, or life offense, that kind yeah. of thing. And so she really seeks to address injustice. Um, And uh, the reason why I shared the book with you was that was, again, part of my hurt that I was sharing. Mm -hmm. Because for me, I can see it very clearly and know it um, because of my job, um, but also know it because of where I was raised. And, Mm -hmm. you know, different things that I saw where it's not part of you and I relationship, but it is one of those things where when we go to a restaurant or someplace else, we joke about it because we see it, but we don't let it become our thing. The irritating part is that when we're not together, I still have to live with. It. Right. <laughs> and so, and, and that's where it's like, okay, why do I have yes. to be the one to have the awkward conversation when no one else does? Like this is part of that injustice. If we're all having it, then I can say, okay, this is, Still not right, but it is one of those things where we're working through it together. Well, that's um, the second reason that the book was so helpful. The first reason was it tells a very good story and lays out facts that speak for themselves and demonstrate a picture of injustice that demands a response, period. Demands interaction. And as I told you <laughs> when we spoke earlier this morning, and I told you, hey, actually, I'm, 
almost done the book that you sent me. Um, it, what it helped me to connect from our conversation last week was when you said that there are conversations that you can't have. Reading these accounts, reading the history that go back to when I was four and five years old, to lives that were being impacted when I was 22 and 25 years old by the politicians who I had voted for or voted against, it it raised this question, why were these topics of discussion not on my radar? And not just on my radar, but why were they missing from the wider conversations in the cultures surrounding Mm -hmm. me? Once I, once I was able to make that connection, the question you, when you said there are conversations that you cannot have, it put a totally new context around that. Well, give that an I example from seen. the book or clarify for those who haven't read it. What do you mean? Yeah. So number one, I, w- I would encourage you if you haven't read this to read this, but number two, um, yeah. So a specific example of what I'm talking about, there were, there were multiple examples, um, but the the primary, um, the primary profile, if you will, in the story follows the life of, of one woman who um, is working hard to care for her mother. She's mm-hmm. an entrepreneur. She's um, got multiple businesses going. And as a uh, just to make a little money on the side, she is carrying a kilo of uh, cocaine from a major distributor in one city to a minor distributor in her town in order to make a, a few extra bucks on the side. Mm-hmm. And okay, so it's illegal. Get that. Um, but when she is arrested, thinking that what she's done is is sure it's illegal but it's pretty far down on the ladder of offenses (laughs) yeah she's thinking i've got a good chance and this is the common thread between all of the stories that are told here and this is um, according to the numbers that Brittany lays out in the book is the majority of the convictions that stand at this point in time a low level offense like this is bumped up uh, by a couple things. One, the law has stated that crack cocaine is going to be treated as if one gram of crack cocaine is the same as 100 grams of powder cocaine. Uh, so that in sentencing, if one gram of powder cocaine gets a year, then one gram of crack cocaine will get 100 years. Just right off the bat. There are mandatory minimum sentences that are put in place by the law. And then other charges like uh, conspiracy, which are so broad that they can, um, they can be used as a dragnet basically to capture anyone who in any way was related to anything having to do with anyone else who was connected to community crime can be charged with the full weight of the crime from as high up as it can possibly go. As a result, when being arrested, upon being arrested and going to trial, 
fighting for um, an appropriate judgment and believing that she's going to receive a fair judgment, she is shocked, and, and we're all shocked, when the sentence of life in prison as a federal charge means without chance of parole mm-hmm. is what she's given. Uh, she spends, what, 28 years behind bars? I believe before so. She is, before her sentence is commuted um, by President Obama. Now, the reason I'm talking about this and saying, where's the conversation is because when President Obama, okay, President Obama, whose inauguration I stood in the cold to watch, when he was in office, this was going on. I'm in my mid-20s. When he signs her commutation, I'm in my mid to late 20s. And this isn't a part of any conversations I'm having or any of the people that I'm having conversations with are having. While we are talking about a lot of really important things as as church leaders, as members of the community, as concerned citizens, this was not on there. So when you say there are conversations that you can't have, reading this, put that into a context Mm -hmm. um, that that, that granted, that gave a lot of gravitas to your statement because the question i have to ask the question why is this not being talked why wasn't this being talked about that I, that's I mean, not I a can, question for you yeah. that that's a <laughs> yeah, that's indicative that? of a problem yeah, that's indicative is- of of there's an injustice and, and and where are the people standing for truth saying right. hey there's a problem here and even if all I can do is wave my hands and say, there's a problem, why am I, where am, why am I not seeing that taking place? And that's, and that's and from, my... from what you're saying is you have, to do, you have to live with this. Even when, when you and I can go out and we can hang out and we can talk about this, we can laugh about this, we can live this together for a moment. But when we, when we walk away from each other, you still have to live with this. You still have to live with these conversations. I don't. And that's a fair statement. I don't have to live with them. Hmm? To be, to be blunt, 40 years into this mess, and it's only been the past three or four years I've started having these conversations. Maybe a little more than that, but to be fair, very, very small percentage of my life. And this is coming from, you know, background, um, my Puerto Rican Italian who has three African American brothers, <laughs> literally adopted into his family, brothers, and um, one sister, and a sister, and this even more than that. But I was—it's just one of those things where this isn't a, um, one of those things where we're recording in North Dakota and Minot, and I am <laughs> the, the only the missionary. Yeah, I'm the missionary driving through, and I'm the black guy for the day. Now there's. And I make that joke. I know there's a military base there. I've been to Minot actually and driven through while I was a missionary. It, it's still one nope, of those things. No one understand if we said Fortuna, but that's where. Well, I'm there going. you go. But it, it is it is one of those things where um, uh, I wanted to make space for you to have, at least in this episode, to respond to a lot of the stuff. And I was glad when you read the book. Um, so I just gave that to you over the weekend to burn through, and you did. Uh, so thank you. Um, and I think oh, more people you. should understand 
again, when I was talking about being focused on life, this is what I mean, the actual living of it, not just the protection of it, but the living of it. When you hear and read these stories of individuals who years are being consumed by inequality, um, willing to admit that they did something wrong. Well, this is the difference between, you know, me shooting off a firework and someone dropping a nuclear bomb, like completely right. different. <laughs> yep. Both can be classified as ordinances, but this is drastically different. And then yes. to know that, you know, we can uh, encourage people to say our system is OK. I'm, I'm not against people being put away. I'm saying that if the system is broken, we have to work as believers to love those in the system to better. And we have to look and push for change in that system as well with the knowledge that our hope is truly found in Christ. But please don't make that the only thing um, as though you don't have the ability to promote many things in life. Um, from what we eat <laughs> to what we do, to how we give, um, don't act as though you have no thought or um, potential to advance initiatives. Um, and the book is good about that as far as talking about, you know, what happened under Trump. And even though I mentioned other podcasts, this for me has nothing to do with either presidents or Clinton or either party. This has more to do with a broken system where people are having conversations that aren't leading to productive, healthy change in the lives of those around them. And you're, I mean, you, in the book, it, it discusses the consumption of whole families, tribes, yeah. villages, yeah. And, yep. and you just go, this is not okay. And yet that is what I've seen, where you just go, we're caring for this one individual and his whole family has been sacrificed for what appears to be recreational um, and is now legalized. <laughs> and, and why is it now legalized? Why is this okay when, as you stated in our childhood, this was so wrong and so evil and so preached against, and now it's okay? Like what, what changed? The Bible didn't change. What changed? Like how, did, how does this happen? And then why is it one of those things where... Um, the loss of life doesn't have to be considered. If, if we were um, in some other country, uh, those individuals, whether, I mean, we do it for Native Americans, there, there would be some, something to reconcile this law, right? Why is it not true for others? And it doesn't, for me, I'm not talking about money. I'm just talking about like, this is part of the recognizing it. <laughs> we have to change. There, there has to be this um, conversation to start off with. Got to be a conversation. There has to be a conversation to start off with. One of the ideas, and I don't, I'm not going to quote this exactly, that the author covers um, throughout the book is the idea that essentially out of sight, out of mind, you have an explosion of the population of federal inmates from the start of the war on drugs, where we had something like, you know, I don't remember the numbers off, off the top of my head, but I think it was something like 100,000 prisoners at the beginning of the war on drugs. 
and within a few years that had gone to over a million. Now, if, if a million people are taken off the streets, my, my thinking is just logically, we would probably notice this. Is someone would probably say, hey, do you remember Fred? Fred's no longer here either. But what happens because this is the, the justice system, this is the legal system, we can rationalize and say, well, people were incarcerated because they broke the law, and we can leave it at that. We can leave it and say, okay, well, you know, justice was done, and maybe justice was not done as well as it should have been done, but justice was done. So why do we need to continue looking into this? And then you have hundreds of thousands of people. who may have been or may not have been treated very unjustly while still legally. But if you don't look into it, how would you ever know? And the thing about prisons are, is they're really good at isolating, right? Prisons really easy to isolate. If I'm a prisoner, it's very easy to isolate me from being able to have a voice. And if I'm mistreated, we, we can see this when we look across the water. When we look at other regimes throughout history, we can say, okay, well, if, if I don't like you, one of the ways that I can keep you from being uh, a pesky problem to me is I can throw you into prison. I can forget the key. That, the idea of then getting you to better is not part of that, which makes me question, how are you pro-life? Because that's not a life. That's just living death, right? That's what hell is. It's eternal separation from God. There's no opportunity for progress. There's fire, burning, worms that eat your skin in a body built for burning. Like that's genuinely hell. Darkness, so you can't say you're going to have a party. Isolation. You can't feel the warmth of love or like this to me is where I say I'm very much pro-life because there should be a process to get people to better. As you read the book and you hear the story of a lady who gets out of prison and years later goes to a hotel for the first time and can't figure out how to get in the room, you realize, okay, the system was not encouraging her to have a life. Because when she came out, <laughs> everything was very different as opposed to saying, okay, you've been brought to the place where now you can go live and live better than you came in. Yes, there were hoops and systems and certifications and other stuff that make it better than it used to be. But when a person has been locked up for 28 years, and again, these are places where they don't make any money. So you can't say you came out and you have some money to do better, Right. Yes, you can get some training, some education, but you haven't been around other people outside of the people you've been with. So whatever social skills they had going in, those are the ones you're coming out with. You were in the middle of nowhere. So you can't pretend like you've been engaging with community or community has been engaging with you. And that breaks my heart as a shepherd, as a believer in Christ, because we're called to journey together. Like that. That's, that's the stuff we've got to work on. 
wherever we are, if you're a teenager, if you're an adult, whatever influence God has given you, these are the conversations I, as I was telling you, like, I, I can't be in everything. And see, here's, but I can be in the stuff that I'm around. See, and that that's it right there. We're responsible for the knowledge. This is like Adam and Eve taken from the, from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Once you have the knowledge, you are responsible for it. You can't unknow what you know. As I've read more history, as I've read more uh, broadly, perspectively, I become responsible for the knowledge that I come into contact with so that I can no longer throw it away behind me and say, oh, that doesn't matter. This doesn't have any bearing on, on how, I, how I guide my life forward now because I can pretend like I don't know this. I, I, the Christian cannot pretend like he doesn't know. It's not given to us. And once the Christian knows that there may be something very bad going on over there, that knowledge itself ought to be a compelling force to go and look because the, the, the gospel mandate is not one of wait and see. It's not one of welcome in and bandage up. It's go and be an ambassador. It's go and be the diplomat. It is as you are going, carry forth the work of the gospel, which is to bind up the brokenhearted, to bring sight to the blind, and to declare freedom to the captive. That's what Jesus said he came to do. And he calls his church to walk after him. It's one of the things I was thinking about. You know, you talked about, gives the stories of the commutations that um, President Obama did and one that President Trump did. And I, I looked up these numbers after reading the book to look at how many commutations and exonerations the presidents gave in the, from basically 1900 to the present. And it's, it's pretty appalling. FDR, you know, there's something like 11,000 requests that came before him, which I can imagine are coming out of World War II and possible war crimes or treason or all kinds of things where there, there were so many people gathered up in the name of public safety charged with things so that they could be held right, wrongly. I don't know. It wasn't there. Under President Obama, there were 30,000 requests for consideration of commutation, specifically because, um, according to the book, under his AG, Eric Holder, there was a very strong focus on the injustice that had been done through the legal system to hundreds of thousands of people. And uh, President Obama has the, the best record of redressing some of those wrongs. It's slightly less than 2,000 out of 30,000 that were applied. And that's, that's not to suggest that there's, there were 2,000 out of those 30,000 that were worthy of redress. What went on, whether or not it was legal, is not the question. It was unjust. To say, well, you have, you have a powder, which you've cooked down to make a rock, therefore it's a hundred times worse. It's not just. It's not righteous. 
to say, because you have this, there's a mandatory minimum sentence of 25 or 30 years is not just. To say the systems have been built this way. You have to ask a question when there's a system that's been built, when there is a design, when there's clearly a design, you have to ask the question of what was the intent of the designer? What was the purpose for which this was built? And looking at the war on drugs, knowing nothing else but the results, I can very confidently say it looks like the design here was to get a whole bunch of black people into prisons and keep them there for a long time. That's not just, it's not right. And it's not enough to simply say it's not just, and it's not right. Something needs to be done. And as you pointed out previously, it's not enough to say, hey, be warm and well fed. I'll pray for you. Tell me how this is going for you. I'll, I'll check your missionary paper every so often. The question is, how, how can I as an individual, how can I as an individual do in the face of injustice? Here's Brittany, a lawyer who gave years of her life fighting for more than a handful of people. And at the close of the book, she has what? Nine, 10, a dozen people for whom she's been quote unquote successful. Correct. That's not right. If you go to our website, you see the hundreds, about a hundred that are still locked up where again, the laws have changed and they're living out sentences based off of old laws. And they're looking to raise funds and trying to get as many people out as possible. But the tough part is it comes only through pardons. <laughs> there's no, there's no space in our system. To, there could be. I mean, that's a, that's a thing that, that I, infuriates I, me. Our, I, Congress I, could address this. Congress has addressed this. And there's no reason. There's no reason that I can fathom. Other than money. And or power. That there could not be a very simple bipartisan effort to rewrite these laws, to make the laws retroactive the way that they ought to be. When you recognize an injustice has been done, it's not enough to say we will stop doing this injustice. There has to be a retroactivity to say what was wrong that was done must be undone in some way. And that hasn't happened. It's happened in very, very limited ways i think if we engage in that way then the cost would cause us to stop <laughs> um like the the actual cost the weightiness of it would cause us to change right if i'm we're neighbors and your pollution is running into my lake uh, because you're upstream and i literally can't do anything about that then why should i expect any change from you 
you don't, you don't, you don't have to deal with what's occurring in my lake. Like you don't see it. You don't engage with it. If there are actual ways in which I can lobby, we can push for change. And you have to now deal with the cost of the runoff. Okay. Now we're talking about, you're going to want to change and figure out a creative way to do it. I'm not saying that I have to be in charge of it as your neighbor, but there will be a process because we don't want to spend the money to pay for my pond to be, you know, fixed. We want to pay something else, um, the, the least amount. And I get that, but understand we still got to clean up my pond. Um, we, we still have to work with this. And this is how um, what we saw in Buffalo and in, and, and we've seen in other places where, again, racism has slid in and it, it's there and has built a home and it needs to be demolished. It needs to be addressed. And this isn't saying that we aren't moving forward. This is saying that the progress, the process are not the same, um, you know, People's hearts and minds are changing, but the process of incarceration is not changing. <laughs> uh, not for those who are stuck there and can't find hope or be relieved of um, the burden of injustice. When we look at this young man and whether it's addressing mental health issues, again, there's an injustice there, just as there is for those whose lives were taken. There has to be this. Um, clarity to say, okay, this is not right, and we need to work to better as opposed to the lip service of, um, um, well, so-and-so stood up and attacked the, um, the, the guy who came into the Asian church to kill them all, and he's a hero. I hear you. Yes, he is a hero, but this shouldn't have happened. Um, yes, this is in California, and no, this is not New York, but this gentleman came with the intent of getting rid of people that he views as other, and the system encouraged him as opposed to helped him see that this is not healthy. This is not the way we should progress. There is a value to this other person just as I view my own self of value. Whether it's, again, addressing replacement theory, and we can get into that in another episode because I know we've gone long here. But it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's one of those things that um, conversationally, we, we have to have the uncomfortable conversations so that we can grow. Um, we're having it you know, to, you know, today and other days. And we do that as believers with the knowledge that when we step into the kingdom of God, all this stuff will fall away and we'll just, we'll just be, but I'm sure there's going to be a lot of uncomfortable conversations with God before you get in on, okay, how does this work? Do you really know me? I've had, I've had the opportunity to evaluate the way that I was raised environment in which I was raised uh, a lot of times over the years. And I took this for granted when I was younger. The more I've evaluated it, the more aware I am, uh, both of the impact and of also the limitations, but the reality of the presence in my life. And, and that is that 
in, in the context in which I was raised, othering was just not done. Mm. As a result of that, while I know that racism is real, while I know that racists exist and are around me, it's really, really difficult for me to see through their eyes. I'm not saying see through their eyes to be able to empathize with their position. I mean, see through their eyes to be able to see where racism othering is taking place in the people I'm speaking to. One of the first places it became um, more clear to me, easier to see, was when we were talking about um, immigration, either legal immigration. This was, you know, 15, 17 years ago. Mm -hmm. I'm having a conversation with someone who I know, who I respect, who I love, and the person spoke of the immigrants in a way that so clearly othered them as being unworthy of. And, and I'm sitting here thinking, but you didn't come from here. And I didn't come <laughs> from here. What, what makes them other? We are the same. We all immigrated here. What makes us different? The fact that I'm here now how, do, how does the fact that I'm here now make it okay for me to say, but you better not come over here because you might take what I have? I, I don't understand that. I mean, honestly, I don't understand that. That is so foreign to me. That's so foreign to my heart. But because it's foreign to my heart, Dave, it's hard for me to recognize it, what's going on around me. If it's hard for me to recognize and I don't see it, then I can't address it. In other words, the more I've read, the more I've come to know, the more knowledge I have, the more I'm responsible for, the more responsible I am to be aware of the things that I'm seeing as they really are and to engage in them with the gospel. Growing up, being pro-life, I was one of the kids who was taken to picket in front of abortion clinics. I did the march. I read scriptures at the state house i was also in, involved in drug rehab plans i was also involved in adoptions i was also involved in prison ministry it was a more comprehensive pro-life position than is typically meant when than is typically thought of when someone says pro-life but there's a whole lot more work to be done. The scary thing for me, man, is that the, the people who were the most just in all of this were the judges who had to hand down these sentences because they had sworn to uphold the law, a law which they did not write, a law that they did not get to vote on, but a law which they nevertheless were bound to uphold, which said you must be horrible they were the most just and it crushed many of them i know they stepped down which was interesting 
to know that you know surrender unto Caesar's what is Caesar's and render unto God what is his and to know that we are his. I can't imagine being a judge as a believer sitting in front of another believer who has made a dumb mistake. Because as you go through the book, you'll hear of stuff yep. where we're not even selling drugs, but we're, you know, friend of a friend kind of thing. And yep. <laughs> we're standing in a room, we're standing there, but literally had nothing to do with it. And then um, their life is no longer theirs. I, I don't know as judge, again, believer to believer, how I could handle that. Um, but I do know that when you get into the weeds, you're able to actually understand a little bit better where the illness lies. And as a body of humanity, um, I'm hoping that we can be intentional to have the uncomfortable conversations that lead to true progress, um, that lead to um, not just as having fun together, but actually sharing life together. And so uh, you already know this brother, but for all the listeners who don't know, I love Jerry. He's, he really is my brother. And so um, uh, it's been good to have this conversation and I felt safe enough to do it with you. Um, whereas for most, treasure that, man. Well, for, for most African-Americans, this wouldn't be a conversation we would have with anyone outside of our race because it would require work. Um, it would require um, the discomfort to be something that always comes back to, oh, I have to do it. The black people have to do this. They need to figure it out. And it's like, that's like saying the inmates need to figure it out. How, how how is that going to work? The system is not created by me, but yet there are systems in which I play roles and I have to be mindful of that. Um, and so there is sure. space, right? Because even as we talk about the prison, all I can think about is what about the chapters? Like, how do you walk in and know day after day I'm working with people in, in these, you know, yes, there are some that are guilty that belong, but for the people we're talking about who don't belong, how do I how do I work with this? Um, how am I not the one lobbying for them? And I know some great chaplains, so I'm not besmirching them one bit. It's just these are the things as um, a dad wrestling with tough questions for a son <laughs> um, that caused me to pause and go, "How is the system not working in a way that glorifies God?" I know the world's broken. I know we're looking for Christ to return. And I also know um, that we have short attention span. Yep. So we'll see what happens. Um, I am hopeful in Christ, <laughs> but not in men. Um, so yeah, we'll see. Um. I really do treasure our friendship, these conversations. The fact that we have one Father, one Lord, one Savior, one Holy Spirit, one body. That Christ is all of grace and truth, the true image of God. 
that that's what we share. We are each responsible to do right. As one who is responsible to do right, I'm not responsible to make sure you do right. I'm responsible to do right myself. I'm responsible to call to you, point out what's wrong, remind you of what's right as your brother, encourage you and to give you grace, but not to say, yeah, but what about you? I think one of the scary things, as you, as you said, one of the scary things about entering into a conversation like this is that the possibility is, and the probability is probably quite high, that the response from either side will be, yeah, well, what about you? And a, yeah, well, what about you conversation is a non-starter. It doesn't recognize that we are in this together. And I know that saying we are in this together does not mean that we have the same experience. And yet, if I don't recognize that we are in this together, that other factor will create a gulf. And if it's a gulf that is difficult to span within the church, it's going to be impossible to span outside the church. We have a lot of work to do. Do we do? So this and other uncomfortable conversations, <laughs> more in store. Thank you for listening to Anchored and Devoted. Please don't tune us out because of these two episodes. Wait for the third one. Um, That's right. <laughs> get the whole, the whole shebang. We love you. Have a blessed, blessed day. God bless. See ya.